Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Just a warning, this episode deals with suicide. If you or someone you know needs support, help is available from Lifeline on 13 11 14. From a shy, intelligent Sydney boy to the charismatic in excess frontman, how did Michael Hutchins become a superstar with one of the biggest bands in the world? And how did it all go so terribly wrong? The international music industry is in shock with the death of rock star Michael Hutchins. I'm angry that partly we, we didn't know enough about traumatic brain injury then. We didn't know what it was. We didn't know he'd had this injury that was injuring his brain. He can't think properly. We just kind of couldn't understand that he was just not the same Michael. The band didn't say anything and and now, of course, afterwards they write a book and say, oh, he wasn't himself. He was just terrible to get along with and everything. Well, yeah, that's part of traumatic brain injury, you know, and being pushed to the limit with paparazzi, with Paula calling them and saying, this is where we'll be. I mean, really. I'm Stephen Downey, and you're listening to Investigates, the podcast that lifts the veil on some of the biggest crimes and mysteries of the world. Today we're talking about the life and death of Michael Hutchins. The middle son of Kel and Patricia, the older brother of Rhett, the younger brother of Tina, the father of Tiger Lily and one of the biggest rock stars the world has ever seen. At the peak of his fame with Australian band In Excess, Michael, with his long locks and effortlessly cool rock star moves, was adored by fans. He had a string of high-profile relationships with famous women, including our own Kylie Minogue. But then, just as In Excess were trying to reignite their career, Michael's body was found in a Sydney hotel room in 1997. So what happened? What went wrong? And why, 20 years after his death, are his family only just finding out about some debilitating medical conditions? In this week's Investigates, we discover the real Michael from one of the women in his life who knew him best, his big sister, Tina Hutchins. Tina, welcome to the podcast. How was it that your brother, Michael Hutchins, ended up in one of the biggest bands of all time? Well, when the family went back to Australia from Hong Kong, Michael was just almost 13. And uh, the school he went into, he, he did meet Andrew Farris. And then later when he... He spent some time back in the U.S. with me and returned to Australia, and uh, he and Andrew became really firm friends. And at that time, Andrew, he had a garage band. You know, Michael would go over there and watch them, and he'd just really hang out. 
And nobody knew he had this voice, really. He'd never said he wanted to sing, or he really didn't sing around the house or anything. He just listened to a lot of music and wrote a lot of poetry and read a lot of poetry. But I guess one day Andrew just said, you know, I've got to try out a drummer, so I, I can't do the singing in this. Why don't you hear, hear the, some words? Do you know this song? And and Michael did that, and they all sort of were aghast. Like they couldn't believe he actually had this voice. We've got is this moment. Move forward to playing in huge arenas around the world. You saw them a number of times, obviously. We see Michael as, as the rock star on stage. But what, what did you see when you saw him up on stage? Well, I mean, he was still that skinny kid, you know, my brother. I was really proud of him. And I could see how he was growing, you know. If, if if I hadn't seen him perform in a year or something, I would see he he just got so much confidence over time. You know, as a child, you 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 would never ever believe that this kid would end up on stages in front of, well, look at Wembley with seventy two thousand people. I was just proud. Michael would have turned 60 this year. How does that make you feel? And also, what what sort of a man do you think he would have been? Well, like he always was, he was um, just a, a really great man. He was brought up well. You know, he respected women. And um, I think he would be not maybe fronting in excess anymore. I don't even know he, if he would be singing on stages. I think at this stage in his life... I think he would have gone into movies, honestly. He really always wanted to act. In 1986, Michael made his acting debut as Sam in Richard Lowenstein's film Dogs in Space. A choice that didn't shock his family because Michael grew up in the industry. His mother Patricia was a model, TV makeup artist and an actress who had starred in a film when Michael and his brother Rhett were young. Going back to when he was a boy, what was your relationship like with Michael? Well, of course, I'm 12 years older than Michael, and our parents were both very busy. They both, even my mother was working in motion pictures, so, you know, she was doing uh, 12 to 14 hour days, so, you know, I'd come home from school and, and the babysitter would hand me Michael. So we were very close, especially the first five years before we went to Hong Kong to live, because that was the first time that we had someone to care for the children. You know, I could actually have a teenager's life. (laughs) And that sort of went into play later on, because I was, I tended to be, you know, a confidant and a sister and a mother. You know, it would change with what his problem might be or just where he was in life. It's established that Michael loved women and had some amazing relationships with women. What did you, looking in from your side, what did you think about his relationships with people like uh, Helena and, and Kylie? Kylie surprised me because I just had no idea. I mean, it just seemed an odd combination but of course she said over and over he came at the right time in her life i mean i used to say it was like i had i had blinkers on and then the blinkers came off because it was the right time in my life as well to kind of open up to the world and discover a lot of new things 
But even when it was slightly on the wild side, he, he was always very tender with me. And when he called me from Hong Kong and he said, I have someone here, we want to take you for your birthday dinner. We'll be back in two days. And I'd heard rumors that he was seeing Kylie. And next thing he, you know, he, he said, so I'll, I'll surprise you. It's Kylie. Kylie Minogue. And I, was, I just, what? I just, I mean, in some ways at, at that stage, I was of two minds because he had been dating a friend of mine. He'd been dating this, this very lovely American model, Rosanna, and I had become very close to her. So it was just kind of unsettling. But, you know, as soon as I met Kylie, she's such a a lovely lady. She was a beautiful, she was a little girl then. She really was. Helena, I had seen her in magazines, but I was surprised that, you know, he did the switchover from Kylie to Helena was so fast. And I, I met them in Paris. I stayed with them in Paris before we all went to the south of France for Christmas. And, uh, you know, I thought she was very sophisticated, very young, but very sophisticated. And, um, I mean, gorgeous. You could really take your eyes off of her. She's just <laughs> stunning, you know. I mean, I felt like chopped liver next to <laughs> Elena. <laughs> I mean, my gosh. <laughs> Try taking your new boyfriend that you're so in love with to Christmas and Helena shows up, okay? That that is not <laughs> an easy. <laughs> so there you are. <laughs> and what was he like? You know, when you sort of observe your brother with Helena or, or Kylie or whoever it was, he was wonderful with women. He loved women. I mean, my mother once said to him, "Michael, when are you going to settle down and get married?" He said, "Mother, there are too many beautiful women in this world." <laughs> he loved women, but when he he was with you. When he was with that woman, she was the absolute apple of his eye. He was all very gracious to other women, but he did not. I mean, that woman that he was with at that time was everything, and she felt like it. Over his 37 years, Michael had numerous relationships, but the four biggest ones in his life were his first love, Michelle Bennett, singer Kylie Minogue, supermodel Helena Christensen, and TV host Paulie Yates. Michael's longest relationship was with Helena, who he met in 1991 and dated until he met Paula in 1995. While Michael was with Helena, he was involved in an incident that would end up shaping the course of his life. Michael's life took a dramatic turn in 1992 when... He was the victim of a horrific assault in Copenhagen when he was with Helena. My head was smashed onto a road. I spent a couple of weeks sort of talking in tongues and stuff. <laughs> Finally, I'm, I'm fine now. But the, the good thing about it is uh, these kind of experiences make you really sort you out a lot. How did you find out about that incident? I remember when it happened, and I guess it, I don't know if it went into the newspapers in Australia or it was just simply that he told my mother that basically he'd just hit his head. You know, somebody had attacked him and he'd gone down on the pavement. She said to me, you know, it's not a big deal. He said, it's not a big deal. Yeah, he's got a, a horrendous headache and 
he did go to the hospital, but, you know, he's fine. I mean, she said it to me like I knew about it. What about Michael's uh, hurting his head or something? And I had not heard anything. And when I spoke to him, he dismissed it, you know, because I would always call when she'd come, she'd give me some news. He dismissed it. And he did that until he started telling me that his uh, sense of smell and taste, senses of smell and taste, had not come back. And he said to me at the time he was concerned because he was told that they may never come back. And I just, I, you know, and I, and I remember where we were standing when he told me this. And I had people over, we were having a dinner party. So right in the middle of it, I had gone up, gotten up for something and he started talking to me, uh, you know, six months later or something saying it hasn't come back. And it was interesting because he'd always been a connoisseur of wine and he would still pass it under his nose, knowing that he could not smell it you know but he was so used to uh trying the aroma under his nose that he still did that but he was very sad about it and um the thing that i mostly noticed was the change in his personality because he'd always been so easygoing in fact honestly he just let people walk over him at times but that changed he he would sometimes snap but we didn't talk about it very much. And I didn't really hear the full circumstances, especially that he'd been told that he had a traumatic brain injury, that he'd been to see many specialists. I didn't hear that until Richard Lowenstein actually spoke to Helena Christensen. She never told any of us. For a month, he lay in bed in my apartment. He was throwing up most of the time. He should have been in hospital, but he was aggressively against it. I would bring him food, but most of it he would just push away. Like, he got almost violent. This dark, very angry side came out in him. And it was only when he slowly, after a month, got out of that state that he was able to make the decision in going to Paris to see a highly esteemed surgeon. He got the scan. He had a fissure to his skull and the nerves had been torn. He most likely would never regain his sense of smell and taste. It just surprises me that maybe she could have come to the family when he died, mm. when all the terrible stories about him were going out. You know, these made-up stories, why he killed himself, or that he didn't kill himself, it was an accident. You know, I just don't understand that. Why do you think she didn't say anything at the time? I mean, she had promised him that she wouldn't. Mm. But that seems to me, still, we had never had any bad words or anything, so I don't understand it. Hmm. I, I really don't. I mean, I would be compelled to go to a family and say, look, this is what happened. This is what he knew, and this is what he was going through. Because after that, it took 
years for it to really come about. I mean, I started looking into things, and it was about the same time that Richard Lowenstein was looking into things, because I, I went to Melbourne. Um, he did his interview with me for Mr. Fi. Well, he wasn't sure what it was going to be at that stage, but I was one of the first people that he actually, he, he put me on camera for that. We probably, I probably talked for two hours and dissolved mm. into tears. But he didn't know that then. He didn't, neither of us did. We just talked about it, and that he had, his personality had changed and so forth. And then I started, you know, looking uh, on the internet about people with uh, head injuries and so forth. And I, it seems we came to the same conclusion at the same time because we were talking all the way through him doing Mystify. And my, you know, I was working on the book. Mm. So, yeah, I guess he, his, his whole personality did change. There were some... Definitely. We'd, we'd seen some, and we read things about, you know, arguments with the band when while recording, you know, he... Temper was was obviously getting out of control at times. Did you see anything like that? Did you see those sorts of things? Well, I mean, I did see that he was not the usual easygoing Michael. I think it was back in, uh, I don't know, sort of maybe 94 or so. The band was in town. They were playing... And I took my daughter and her, a couple of her girlfriends along with me to see them. And um, he was not even, he barely came over to the table afterwards. And that wasn't him at all. He would normally sit down and, and uh, you know, we'd hang out. And, I mean, he he mostly just stayed in another area backstage um, with Helena and I guess a couple of a couple of Helena's friends. And the next thing, he came over and he's to the table and he said, um, "Helena's hungry, so we're going to go and get a hamburger. So thanks for coming, and you know, really nice to see you." And he was gone. And that I felt was well, it was just not him. It was just crazy. Mm. And I I was so angry and couldn't understand it that the the next morning i i had couriered a, a letter to him telling him i thought that he was just being too full of himself or something which was not michael but there was something wrong with that he'd never treated us like that before so i and he called me when he got the letter he said what's this you know and i said well i just need to tell you that i don't know if any of your friends or or mother or anybody has told you, but, you know, you're just being a little too much lately. What's the deal? You know, you're just not Michael, I know. He said, come on down to the hotel. Let's have lunch and talk about it. Hmm. And I went down and he said there was nothing wrong. And in fact, when I was leaving, he said, I hey, it's your birthday tomorrow. And Helena's got this great jacket she just wore in a, in a um, I don't know, a show in Paris, and I want you to have it. So I walked out with a beautiful silk <laughs> Marc Jacobs jacket, you know, but still confused. He didn't tell me he was on Prozac or anything, because that's all the doctors used to do then. they just put you on Prozac. You know, some would say there's you can draw that line between the assault and... 
November 22, 1997. Do you think that's yeah. fair? You know, can you see the uh, trajectory, I suppose? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look, what this does to you, and I've, I've done some work for the TBI since then, so I've learned so much more about it. I, in fact, I, I mean, for my book, I interviewed a couple of the, the people. And, and, and what I know is, yes, it, it, they certainly back then didn't know enough about it. Even now, they can't do a lot for you, except they don't put you on Prozac. They, they go through certain therapy. And the thing is, people around you then get to know, well, this is what happened. And it was scary for Michael because two of the things that can be very scary for people with um, a TBI, they usually can't handle being around a lot of people and they can't handle strange lighting, a lot of lighting, or loud noise. Well, that was his life. Mm. He would stand on that stage and that's what he got every night. He wasn't told that. He didn't know this was a problem. And then he was starting to forget his lyrics, his own lyrics. At the time, okay, so around that that time, November, to say 1997, you know, he was was taking the Prozac. He was with Paula. There was a custody uh, situation going on with Paula's kids. He was in a very stressful situation. Well, he was with the wrong person for what was wrong with him. Mm. Do you see what I mean? I mean, Paula, there's no doubt about it, and there have been doctors who have said this. She was borderline personality. So that, that puts a lot of pressure on someone anyway. And, and even Bob Geldof told me this when I finally met him. So somebody like this presses buttons, and she was so used to doing it. She grew up doing this all the time, but she didn't realize she was dealing with a man, nor I don't think she could understand. She was dealing with a man on the edge anyway. Paula and Michael's relationship was tumultuous. Not only did they have to deal with the British paparazzi, but the couple were involved in a bitter custody battle with Paula's ex, Sir Bob Geldof, over Paula's daughters with Bob, Fifi, Peaches and Pixie. I mean, by that time, he was in such bad shape by the time he met Paula. And I remember when he started seeing Paula, he actually called me. It was a late night conversation like he used to. He'd call from somewhere in the world, but he was in his... So, Villa, and he started talking, he said, I want to tell you about this woman. Her name's Paula, and she has these three children. I said, oh, okay. And I had, it was maybe February or March, and I knew, and he'd been here for Christmas, I don't know, like 1990. And um, he said, um, what was it, 1990? Oh, gosh, I get my... Oh, maybe it, no, it would have been later. It would have been later. He was with Elena. It was like I don't know, like ninety-three or something. And he said, "So her name's Paula. It's called. It's she's Paula Yates. You've heard of her." And I said, "No. I mean, we didn't know Paula Yates in the United States." I said, "Who is she? What does she do?" And he said, "Well, 
he said she's, you know, she's married to Bob Geldof. I said, oh, that name I know. Live Aid and everything. Yeah, okay. So I said, where's Helena? He said, oh, she's back in Denmark. She's busy and, you know, so I'm here. And then he just started talking about this woman, you know, that she's funny, she's very bright, a lot of fun. That's it. He didn't say she was see- he was seeing her or anything. He just told me about this woman who lives in London. And he said, we've known each other for many years. She used to show up at concerts all over the place. She was used to show up at concerts like even once in the United States while I was with Rosanna. I said, wow, that's kind of strange. He said, yeah, she showed up with one of her children once, just at the hotel. Wow. I said, I guess she's got a thing for you. He said, oh, I guess she's got a big crush. But she's really been pushing lately. Like She's everywhere. But he was in not the best of shape to start anything up with someone like Paula. Paula's very strong. She was very strong personality. What she wanted, she got. And she would call the press. I mean, she started the whole thing by leaving Bob, calling the press and telling them that Paula Yates is seeing a rock star. And she knew that they would follow her. She told him where she wanted to meet, and she knew it would make a big deal. Michael wasn't about to say, I'm seeing Paula Yates on the side. He was not about to do that. He was still in a relationship with Helena. That was not his thing. He was not going to do that. So she decided to call it, and that was his big downfall. He'd never really been part of the, been chased by the paparazzi before, had he? No, and, and London would probably be the worst place on earth for that. The worst place. I mean, come on. The British press? Shocking. So all of this would have had an effect on Michael. By that time in 1997, it was all getting too much. Oh, my God. He was in terrible shape by then. You know, no other woman had gotten pregnant. Oh, I'm pregnant. What a surprise for a 37-year-old woman. And then obviously he became a father and, and added a responsibility for him. And I think, you know, he wanted Tiger Lily with him in, in Sydney that year, didn't he, in 1997? Absolutely. That's all he was asking for. Paula already had the tickets for the Qantas flight for her and Tiger Lily. She was supposed to leave the next night. She insisted she wanted to bring the other girls with her. The other girls, she'd already decided she and Bob had made a decision that they were going to be with him until Christmas Day. Then he would send them to Sydney. But she decided... She was not going to do that, even with Michael pleading. I mean, he was going to be on a tour anyway. What, what's he going to do with, with, you know, three little girls on tour? So, Tina, I mean, does it make you angry when you look back now? And, and... Well, you can hear it, yeah. right? <laughs> you can hear it. I'm sorry. Hmm. But of, of course I'm angry. I, I'm angry 
that partly we didn't know enough about traumatic brain injury then that he was, you know, he was being taken care of. We didn't know what it was. We didn't know he'd had this injury that was basically, you know, it's it's injuring his brain. He can't think properly. We just kind of couldn't understand that he was just not the same Michael. The band didn't say anything, and and now, of course, afterwards, they write a book and say, oh, he wasn't himself. He was just terrible to get along with and everything. Well, yeah, that's part of a traumatic brain injury and being pushed to the limit with paparazzi, with Paula calling them and saying, this is where we'll be. I mean, really. Do you sort of blame Paula to some extent for Michael's death? How can I not? I mean, yeah, that that will be shocking to people. I certainly didn't put that in the book. But when I look back, no, she didn't give him the brain injury. Of course not. And I don't know that she even knew about it. So it's not, no, it isn't her fault. But he was in the wrong relationship. You know, if he'd stayed with Helena or the the usual women that he he was with, Kylie, any of those women who thought about other people, you know, not just themselves, who who didn't, you know, Paula was sick. You know, a borderline personality is not somebody that should be getting together with somebody who has problems. On November 22, 1997, at 11.50am, Michael's naked body was found behind the door of his hotel room at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Sydney's Double Bay. While there had been some suggestion Michael had died of a sex act gone wrong, the coroner could find no evidence of autoeroticism and ruled Michael's death was suicide. Were you obviously in America when you found out? I was in Los Angeles in my apartment. And I'd been to dinner with my husband. We came in and my answer machine was flashing. I picked it up and it said, it was red. He said, call me, don't turn on any television or radio or just just, just call me, make sure you have somebody with me. So I knew, so I thought maybe Ross had died or Cal had died. You know, mm. at the same time, my husband flicked on the big screen TV and it was on CNN and I was dialing red. And as he answered and said, sit down, I looked at the screen. The sound wasn't on yet. I looked at the screen and on the runner, it said Michael Hutchins dead at 37. Good evening, Angela Pearman with ABC News. The international music industry is in shock with the death of rock star Michael Hutchins. The body of the In Excess lead singer was discovered in a Sydney hotel room late this morning. Police won't confirm the cause of death, but they've taken a leather belt into possession for scientific examination. So, as Rhett was telling me, Mm. I could hear my mother sobbing next to Rhett. 
I said, how? That's impossible. They're wrong. They always put out these crazy stories. Michael's fine. He, he, I just, I spoke to him five days ago. He didn't want to go to Australia for those last six concerts. Did not. Did not. In fact, you know, he was even changing his mind on the night he was leaving. He called me and I told him, don't go. If you don't feel good, if you don't feel like you can do it, tell them you can't. People change these things all the time because somebody's in rehab or somewhere. You don't have to go. You've given them 20 years. You can one time call it off. Just, just give yourself a few months. He said, no, you know, they're relying on me. I have to go. So he did. He should not have. He was too good, too nice. Did you come back to Australia straight away? Well, of course. First flight. I mean, it was already Friday night for me. Mm. First flight was um, the next day, a, a noon flight. Well, it was coming out of New York, stopping in L.A. I spoke to Martha Traup, the manager. And Martha Traup could see in in her in her um, when she spoke to the authorities when we got back to Sydney. One of the things she said in her statement, she knew he wasn't well. He had a letter on him that she'd given him three months before, and it said, "Michael, you need to take." some time off you need to be careful you know what do you think and he said no she told me he said no so it was on with the show she said he said i'll just finish this i got on that noon flight that martha was on and we arrived back in sydney together i know i'm harsh on people but I know the ins and outs of this stuff. There's stuff that people do not know, do not understand. And, and I'm not about to hash the whole thing. You know, I wrote a nice book. Michael, My Brother, Lost Boy of In Excess was about Michael. I didn't want to make it about the band or Paula. The consequences have been horrendous. You know, I mean, not only did he not see his child for that Christmas, did not see Christmas, his family didn't see his child after that. After Paula Yates died of an accidental heroin overdose in 2000, Tiger Lily went to live with Sir Bob and her older half-sisters Fifi, Peaches and Pixie. Tiger Lily is now said to be living in Western Australia, where the 23-year-old is said to have settled down with long-term boyfriend Nick Albrook. You say that, you know, you haven't spoken to Tiger Lily for such a long time. Can you ever see a time when, when you come back together as a family? No, no, that's not going to happen. She's Bob's child. She's a Geldof now. You know, she always has been. I mean, when he took steps so that I could not see her, I mean... You know, I don't have his kind of money, but I would show up in London. I would tell him I'm coming. 
And when I would show up, I'd call. He wouldn't. He will have taken her to Paris, sometimes to Spain. I just stopped trying after a while. I mean, after after ten years, I stopped sending letters or anything. It just wasn't. I was having gifts sent to her. I was having them delivered by my webmaster in London. He knows her better than I do. I just don't know how people can be so cruel. I mean, we could have had a relationship. We could have had a relationship, even though she was in London. But Bob wouldn't allow that. He never allowed it. He didn't. When my mother was dying, when 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 Tiger Lily was fourteen years old, and my mother was dying, I called him. Right, I was right next to my mother's bed. She'd been given three months to live. And I said, Bob, what I'm asking for, she hasn't seen Tiger Lily since she was eight years old. Can we please, please pay for her and maybe a girlfriend or a nanny or whatever you want? We'll pay for it, for her to come here before my mother gets to where she's showing physically showing illness and you know let's not wait till the end can we can she please come here that's all she's asking for i ask her what she wants she just keeps saying she wants to see tiger can we do that for her his message to me what he said to me was i'm running for a plane love no he said no it's not necessary It's pretty harsh. It's a harsh thing to say. Did you not try more? Or was that was that the the last time? That was it. He's he's kind of well. If you have a conversation with him, you'll find that he just cuts you off. That's just no. I said no. No, I didn't try again. I mean, what's that? If if he can't, I'm telling him my mother's dying. Tiger Lily's grandmother is dying. I sound very angry right now, don't I? And and I have a lot to be angry about. I'm sorry. I really, you know, and I tried to just put it the best I could in the book and not rip people up. But talking to you like this, it's really hard. Tini, you're talking to me today about Michael. Do you think about Michael a lot? Do you think about him every day? I do. I don't, I don't you know, there are so many things that, you know, happen in your life and, and you think, gee, I, I would have liked to have made that phone call to tell Michael that, or he would like that. That'd be interesting. Or I bet he could help me figure this thing out. I mean, you, that's just the way it is, more so than anybody, because, you know, we were close. You know, this crazy manufactured thing that in excess have because they're upset with me because I've, you know, spoken out. And they say, oh, we, they have these things. Murphy went around one time and said, well, to radio stations said, well, we hardly know her. Well, yeah, this is where you stayed <laughs> when you were trying to make the band big. This is, this is where we called all kinds of people. They used Michael's contacts 
not just me and my husband and our friends, but our mother. And our mother did, not only did she have them play, their first professional gig was actually at a Channel 7 Christmas party because she was working at Channel 7 on her soap. They've forgotten her, you know? I have photographs from that. They were there. And she had made it happen. And, and you know, with, with when they came here, just staying with us, and, and, and I drove them all over the place. Whenever Murphy would leave me a list of places they should see and be, and, you know, uh, acts they should watch and so forth. And I'd just drive them everywhere so they could take all this in. When he sent Michael and Andrew and Kirk over, the, the three um, at that time, Kirk was also working on songs with them. I mean, mm. they forget this stuff. It doesn't just happen overnight, you know? A lot of people, I'm not saying that I did everything, but a lot of people help you up those rungs. And you should not forget those people, and you should be, not be unkind to those people. Yeah. Tina, yeah, we obviously, we love Michael as the, um, as, as the front man of In Excess. We love him, you know, but for you, he's, he's your brother, was your brother. What do you miss most about your little brother? I always say the hugs. I mean, and it's true. I, I mean, certainly I miss picking up the phone to him. Uh, at the time that he was so busy in the 90s, it was faxes. We were sending faxes all over the place to each other. But, you know, my children miss him. My children are old enough to remember him, and they miss that. You know, the other cousins weren't around, but I, I miss that. He's missed his life with his child, you know? I mean, I, I feel so sad for him that he didn't get that. I mean, certainly it, it must be incredible to be up there on stage and know that people love you. That's not something you can take home. It's in your memory, but it's not something that you take home. What you take home, uh, it's it's your friends and family, and I. They all miss him. We all miss him. His friends are also still very protective of him, and and our family was torn apart when he left us. And but I miss his hugs. Tina, it's been wonderful talking to you. Wonderful talking to you today. Really appreciate your time. Um, I want to wish you all the best. And, um, yeah, thanks again. Thank you, Stephen. You, you are very good at this. Thank you so much. <laughs> you got so much more out of me than most do. <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of Investigates. We'll be back next week with more incredible stories.
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.